0: The series that we are um, this hour is a part of is a series dealing with how Islam plans to change the world. We've looked at various ways that they desire to do that. Three major prongs in their strategy, that being uh, of of uh, dawah, missions, as you might call it, jihad, holy war, the building of mosques, but also they we they have other ways that they are effectively attempting to influence, particularly the Western world, uh, to yield to Islam. And therefore today we're going to be talking primarily about uh, intimidation and persecution as ways that they have been successful in some areas of the Western world. I believe that we are in a very important battle with Islam today. James R. Woolsey, who was the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, adopted the formulation of Eliot Cohen, distinguished Professor John Hopkins School for International Advanced Studies. Cohen said that we are now in World War four. Said World War I and World War II were those in Europe. World War three was the Cold War, but he said now we are involved in World War IV. And he says, World War IV, basically the Western world has three enemies. They are, one, the Islamic Shia, which includes the Iranian Shiite clerics, and the Hezbollah, and I might say part of what's happening in Gaza today, too. Two, the uh, uh, Ba'athist parties of Iraq and Syria, whom he calls fascists. And three, the Islamist Sunnis, which includes the Wahhabi movement. The third group emerged in the war in 1994. These battles with these forces are, are very, very dominant today, and we have to recognize that, that these battles are alive today. And I feel that the, the battle is not only in active warfare, like we see in Lebanon or we saw in the past in Lebanon, like we see even today in Gaza, but is also a very subtle type of an attack on the Western world. And much of this has to do with both Uh, persecution and intimidation, and you might even want to say terrorism. A good friend of mine, uh, his name is Dr. Bruce Jones, uh, wrote a fascinating paper one time, and he tried to define the tactics of, of Islam. And he listed three different major tactics that they're using. One of them is he said that Islam is very effective in accusing people of Islamophobia. We know that the uh, homosexual people uh, like to accuse people that are against them of being homophobic, and they've been very, very successful in putting anybody into a corner that believes that homosexuality is wrong. And of course, we as Christians believe that homosexuality is wrong. Therefore, we are all homophobic. And that, again, is a negative term to try to put us at a disadvantage. Well, Islamophobia is also a very strong reality today. People are saying Islamophobic is anybody who battles and fights against Islam. I would imagine that the truth would be that in their definition of Islamophobic, that I would be a very strong Islamophobic individual. But you have to understand what the dictionary says that uh, a phobia is. It says a compulsive fear of a specific situation or object. The medical encyclopedia says a phobia is an intense, unrealistic fear which can interfere with the ability to socialize and to go about everyday life that is brought on by object, uh, event, or situation. Now, I don't think that we have an irrational fear of Islam. And I also don't think that it is a fear that that interferes with our ability to socialize and, and to be a normal human being. But I do feel as if it is a fear of the possibility of world dominance of Islam. And that is totally different than what would be defined in medical terms as a phobia. But many times, people that I have known that have gone against Islam, they will immediately come along and say, You are Islamic phobic. You are afraid of that. And it is an unrealistic fear. I don't mind them using these terms whatsoever. And if it makes them feel better that that's what we are, then I think that we ought to go ahead and go along with it. Now, let's talk a little bit about, about the intimidation. I used to be the, uh, uh, living in, in, a, in Germany. And in one large church in Germany, a Baptist church, where there was a group of young men that became believers from Turkey. And we had them having a Bible study in this church, in the building on Thursday night in one of their rooms. Well, the church received a letter one time. And the letter said basically this. If you continue to let this group have a Bible study in the basement of your church, we will burn your church down. Well, the elders of the church immediately called me in and said, Brother Wagner, you're going to have to go somewhere else. And we said, why? They said, because we cannot afford to lose our church. You must go somewhere else. This is just an example of intimidation and, and how successful intimidation is. And Bruce Jones comes along, and, and he speaks about intimidation and the successes that they're having with intimidation today. He also uh, comes, and uh, he says that they, they are doing several ways, giving this intimidation in several ways. One of the ways that they're intimidating is what they call lawfare. lawfare. And lawfare is basically that they will sue people that will go against them. I remember when my book was finished, I went over into Germany, and I asked the, a German publisher if they would be interested in publishing my book. So he was very polite to me. He took my book, he read it, came back to me and said, uh, Brother Wagner, we must publish this book in the six, next six months, or we cannot publish it. And I said, why? And he said, there is a possibility of a law being created in Germany, and this law is an anti-hate law, and he said, once this law goes into effect, I could not publish a book like yours, even though it's not a hate book. And even though it doesn't speak negative against Islam as such, it just tells what their strategy is. They will sue us, and we will not be able to defend ourselves against it. Well, what basically happened was they did not pass this law. They did pass it up in Sweden, and it was a, a very big problem up in Sweden. There was one a Protestant pastor In Sweden, they decided to challenge the law. So he uh, decided to speak on homosexuality. And so he put out in the newspaper and advertised that he was going to speak on homosexuality, and he was going to say what the Bible says about homosexuality. And the only thing he did is he got up in the pulpit and he said, Now, I want to read to you what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. He read the whole Bible about homosexuality, and afterwards, they arrested him. They sentenced him to six months in jail. He he never actually served in jail. It was appealed and appealed and appealed, and they finally let him go. But we're in a situation today where if you say anything negative about Islam, uh, there is a danger of, of people suing you and being, being somewhat successful in these suits that they have. Uh, now, there are other ways that they have... Uh, attempted to intimidate people. And uh, we have several of these here. Another way of intimidation that they have, have used beside the idea of lawfare is also the idea of, let me get that here, of, of death threats. Now, we all hear, heard about Salman Rusty, and we know that when Salman Rusty uh, put out his book, the Titanic Verses, that uh, all over the world, they said, this man is going to be put to death. They continue to use death threats as a very effective means of intimidating people and bringing them in line so that they won't go against what they're saying. One person asked me one time, have I ever been threatened? And I said, yeah, I have been. Uh, I have received death threats, and the death threats have been letters that have come from Saudi Arabia and from other areas in the Middle East. And I've been told that my they know the names of my children and they know um, where my children go to school, and if I don't stop working with Muslim people, that I will uh, uh, be put to death. And all I do is throw those letters in the trash can. I kind of wish I would have kept them, because i could like to use them just sometimes and to see show what people have been saying. But death threats really begin to, to be a, a real possibility. I have a good friend in Germany. His name is Udo Offolti And Udo was a reporter for the Salzburger... Uh, Algemein, and the Salzburger Allgemein was very simply a the the number one newspaper in Germany. It's a little bit like in the United States, the New York Times, or uh, I'm sure there's a top newspaper in your particular country, but it is a top newspaper uh, in Germany. And he was a a reporter, an investigative reporter. He's also a expert on law uh, and ethics uh, for uh, for reporters and. I, I've so enjoyed getting to know Udo. he comes up with some fascinating stories, and he says, If you really think about the media today, he said, the media is not nearly as pure and as good as you might think it is. He gave one illustration that when he was a young reporter, there was a war going on between Iraq and Iran, and so they sent him down to uh, to the war and he was in Iraq and he was in the hotel, and he was a, a young reporter and so being the young reporters, some of the old reporters came and said, uh, Udo, you want to go with us? We're going to go out and uh, make a live uh, presentation uh, for the television stations back home. And so Udo says, yeah, I'll be glad to go. And so he got ready, and they, he was even supposed to make a report for his German uh, television station. So he went out there, and they had a big bus, and, and they, they were in Baghdad, and they all got in the bus, and they started driving up towards the war zone. And he noticed that a couple of the reporters had big cans of gasoline with them. And they they put the gasoline back at the back of the bus and took off. And he was wondering why they had the gasoline. Well, maybe, you know, that they're going so far away that they might have to have gasoline to get back. So they didn't go too far away. And he said they went to a couple of, uh, a a truck and a tank Uh, that were all burned out that had been there for about four or five months. And so the guy says, "All right, here we are. Let's get out." So they all got out. And the guys with the gasoline went, and they poured the gasoline all on these these uh, the tank of the burnt out truck. And so uh, one of the guys got a match and threw it in there, and the flames got there. It's all right. Time to go. And one reporter after the other would get in front of this this burning thing, and they would begin to give the reports. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we're here at the war front, and we want to report on the war. And they kind of duck and look around, and, and they go ahead and keep doing that. and They duck and and uh, they gave the report and Udo said why are they ducking he says oh that's for the machine gun fire but that's put back in in the studio back home and so they would one after the other would give this report he said okay Udo it's your turn so he says he got out there and gave the report he says he got back to Baghdad and he called his mother his mother says oh ooh! You're still alive! I thought you were dead. Says why? Says I saw your report, and there was burning, and there was tanks, and there was machine gun fire. I thought you were dead. Says mother, no, I never even got close to the front. He said he had another example one time where he was going down to the war in Congo, and there was a civil war going on, and and uh, so he was down there close to the front, trying to get to the front to make a a, uh, a battle front report, and. Uh, he got a letter, he got a telephone call from his editor. It says, We want you to go to this particular town because that's where the battle is raging. And he said, Well, we can't go to that town. He says, Why not? I says, Well, they, they won't let us go in. They said it's too dangerous. And the, the head of the uh, paper says, What do you mean? This CNN reporter, and they gave her name, just made a live report from there two hours ago. Oh, really? Well, if she did it, we can do it. So they went ahead and hired a little airplane, and they flew into the place. And there was about three reporters, and they landed. And as soon as they landed, a UN soldier from Canada came running out and says, "Go away, go away! You can't stand; it. it's too dangerous." And he says, "Well, this lady and gave her name. Says she just gave a live report two uh, two hours ago from here. It says her, she hasn't been here for two weeks." And sure enough, it was again not nothing. So he was very concerned about that, but. He did write this book in Germany, and it was on the top bestseller list, number one, for a long time. And it was entitled "The War Within," and in this, he was talking about the uh, the whole Islamic situation, the success that they had, the tie-in between the the people in in Germany and the 9/11 uh, terrorists. And it was a very informative book, and it was correct, and most people said it was correct. He had it out, and for about two weeks, it was able to be published. And then there was a law case against him, and there was a court order to stop the book from being published and being sold. And it was fought in the courts for a long period of time, and finally, the book was allowed to be republished. He just recently published another book, and... uh, we hope that book's going to come out, but he called me up about uh, three months ago, and he says, "Bill, I've got a problem." I says, "What's that?" He said, "They have put out on the internet now, uh, all over the country of Germany, that there is a twenty thousand uh, dollar price on his head and the wife and his wife's head, and if anybody kills either one of them, they can collect twenty thousand dollars." <laughs> so we've been talking with him, saying, "What are we going to do? How are we going to work this?" And so he's in secret; he has police protection, and. And other ways, and so, so they, 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 they do threaten, and they carry out enough of these death threats that uh, that it, it, is, it is something that you have to take very, very seriously. What about a death threat? Now, I think that one problem that we run into in America and in the Christian world is I believe it is a fear of, of Islam. It's a fear of what they can do, it's a fear of of our lives, it's a fear of the lives of our family, and anybody that's going to ultimately be successful in working in the Islamic world is going to have to be very much aware of the fact that you cannot be dominated by this fear. We have a problem in American missions today, and I think it might be in other missions also, and that is, this fear carries over into our strategy. Uh, I know of several mission societies, I'm not going to name them, but I know of one of them in particular, where they have taken a very extreme amount of care to be sure that there is protection for the missionaries. It's even to the point now where people that are supporters of these individuals cannot even write them a letter because it has to go through a certain coded uh, means of, of the email. And and uh, they, they are in a situation where where nobody can know that they are Christians and nobody can know that they are missionaries and they're actually, we call them our missionary CIAs because they're there in secret and by being there in secret, they, they are existing as a businessman or doing some other type of a work and they don't want anybody to know for number one, they're fearful that they will be kicked out of the country and number two, they're fearful for their lives because everybody knows that they're a Christian. Now, One of the problems we run into is that they're very successful. Nobody knows that they're Christians, and nobody knows that they're there. And so they're there, but because they're there and because they've been intimidated into silence, they're not really doing anything. They're they're, they're present, but they're not doing anything. I remember one time I went to a good friend of mine in Jordan. This lady was a missionary, and she'd been my secretary, and I went to Jordan, and she invited me over for lunch and said, oh, Bill, will you please come? And by the way, we have this other missionary couple from the Missionary Society that I knew very well and said uh, they, they, uh, they're going to be with us too. So I said, fine. So we went there for supper and I asked this fellow, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a businessman. Or what type of business do you do? I do this, and I do that, and I do this. And Oh, well, that's good. you have to go to church? No, I don't have time to go to church. And He was telling me all of these things. Finally, after about three hours, I said, I know who you are. I know you're a missionary. I know who pays your salary. I know everything about you." He says, I thought you knew, but I couldn't tell you. I have to keep secret. I was also in Beirut one time, and I was speaking at the Baptist Seminary, and there were some missionaries from from our society, basically, and I invited them to come and and to be with me when I spoke at the uh, graduation of the seminary. And they said to me, Well, Brother Wagner, I'm sorry, but we can't come. I said, Why not? We're not allowed to go to the seminary. Because if we go to the seminary, some people might know then that we are Christians. And so I thought it was very fascinating that to a very large degree that that these people have been intimidated into the point of silence. I also had a an acquaintance, and he was a a, a, a Muslim fellow that became a Christian. In fact, he was one of these three that about oh, ten years ago everybody was praying for. They were in prison. In Egypt, because of their Christianity, and after he got out, I had a long talk with him, and I've been in contact with him ever since. and And he told me some things, and uh, he he said uh, he said Bill, he says this whole fear f- attitude that you have of the West, he says, it's really out of proportion. And uh, I said, well, do you think that these people are in danger? These missionaries that go. He says, I'll tell you something. This man, by the way, knew an awful lot. He said, your missionaries many times go and they feel as if nobody knows who they are. Nobody is aware that they're there. Nobody knows of their connections with, with Christian, uh, the Christian church or Christian missionaries. He said, you Americans are very, very foolish. Our intelligence agencies are much smarter than you think they are. They know who you are. They know what you're doing. They know everything about you. And as long as they can keep you from doing anything, then they're very happy. And he says many times they just say, leave them alone. They're not doing anything. Let them continue. But death threats are very, very, very real. What do you do when you get a death threat? Well, I think you just have to say, okay, that's the way it is. That's life. Um, If they're going to kill me, I'm not going to die 10 seconds sooner than the Lord wants me to die. And if I have the opportunity of dying, I'm glad to do it. A good friend of mine, Dr. Yosef Song, who was this, this martyr who who lived his Christian life in Romania and just just really lived for the Lord and, and stood up against the government, came and wanted to write his Ph.D. degree uh, dissertation at the Evangelical Theological Faculty in Belgium. And so he and another friend of mine, Dr. Phil Roberts from Midwestern uh, Theological Seminary, was his... Uh, with his mentor. And we talked to Dr. Song, we said, Dr. Song, what what do you want to write your dissertation on? He said, I want to write my dissertation on martyrdom. He said, do you realize there is no Christian theology, Protestant Christian theology of martyrdom? He said, there's a Catholic theology of martyrdom, but there is no Protestant theology of martyrdom. So he wrote his whole paper on on martyrdom. And uh, it was a fascinating paper. But one individual came and told him, he said, if you really want to understand Christian martyrdom, there's one word that you have to be able to understand before you can understand martyrdom. And and he says, what's that word? He said, that word is worthiness. Worthiness. You know, the Bible says, worthy was the Lamb of God in the book of Revelation. He said, worthiness. He said, martyrdom means that that individual has been found worthy to give his life for Jesus Christ. Worthiness. You have been found worthy to die for the Lord Jesus. And Dr. Song emphasized very strongly the fact that it is a great honor to be able to die for your faith. You should not be fearful of it. The Muslims want to die because they get to go to paradise, but it says that we as Christians ought to be ready and willing to die because we are able then to be found worthy in the sight of God, to be with Him and to be, serve Him. Dr. Song told me the story about one time when he was a thorn in the flesh of the, of the government in, in Romania. He was called into the secret police uh, chief's uh, main office, and he said the chief of police of the whole police system in Romania said, Joseph Song, you are a problem to us. You have caused us difficulty. And I can tell you right now, we're not going to put up with it anymore. And he said he reached into his desk and he pulled out a gun. He said he walked over to to me, he stuck that gun to my head and said, either you deny this Jesus Christ or I'm going to blow your brains out. You have a choice, what are you going to do? And Joseph said that the Lord gave him the right words to say and he said, thank you, sir, you're doing me a great privilege, I really appreciate what you're going to do. The man says, what do you mean? He says, if you kill me now, that means that the Lord has found me worthy to die for him. I would appreciate it, thank you very much. He said the man puts a gun down his desk and says, I don't understand you. He says, I do this to men all the time and they fall on the ground and they say, please, please don't kill me, don't kill me. I don't want to die, don't do it. You want me to kill you. And because you want me to kill you, I'm not going to. You see, Joseph has kind of found that secret that, that to die is, is, is not important. And we, we are living. I, I've always felt like we as Christians have a strange concept of death and life. You know, put me in the emergency ward and put me on uh, all of these various other life support systems, keep me alive until the very minute. No, I just soon die and be with the Lord. I, I don't think that we need to be afraid. Dr. Uh, uh, C. Peter Wagner told me one time the story that he went down to South America, and uh, as he was in South America, he was invited to go to the home of one of the missionaries that was working in South America together with a team of some others. And and this team of of missionaries were flying planes into the jungle, Amazon jungle, and trying to reach different tribes. And he said he had supper with, with about five families, and they were all there together, and he said they were talking, and they were talking with each other. They they had a good discussion, and finally, they, they started talking about what they were going to do tomorrow. And tomorrow, they were going to fly in to this one area that they had not had any verbal contact with this group of Indians. And they had discovered there was a little sandy beach that they could land their plane on. And in the weeks prior to that time, what they would do is they would identify these Indians and they could see them from the plane and they would drop presents down to them with a very ingenious system where they would have a a rope attached to it and the plane would go into a circle and they could drop the bucket and then they would put some gifts and the Indians would put some gifts back to them and they'd pull it up and they got gifts and they would exchange these gifts and finally the next day they were going to land and have contact with these Indians. And see, Peter said he was with them and he said, well, isn't that dangerous? And they said, yes. And he said, isn't there the possibility that you might lose your life? And they said, yes. What are you going to do? He says nothing. We find a great wonderful honor to be able to die for our Lord. And see, Peter said at that time he began to realize that probably martyrdom is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says he's never seen people before in his entire life so ready to die. Well, you know the rest of the story, of course, that they did take off that next day. They did land on the sandbar. And three days later, the army from that country had to go in and recover the bodies because all of them were killed. But see, Peter Wagner said, I've never seen in my life before people ready to die. Now, there are death threats. And these death threats come in all the time from, from the Muslims. And they say, we will kill you if you do this. I think that we as Christians ought to turn this thing the other way and say, hey, fine, if you feel like that's what you want to do, you want to kill us in that way, I would be more than glad to, to accommodate. What do you want me to do? But there is really more of an intimidation than it is actually taking place. Well, what about persecution? Persecution, Intimidation and persecution go hand in hand. Imitation is the threat of violence while persecution is that that threat is finalized. Uh, One man, uh, his name is David Barrett, who wrote the World Christian Encyclopedia, has uh, a lot of statistics on martyrdom. I'm not entirely sure that all of these statistics are correct. Uh, I've had some discussions with, with David, and David says, if you can prove they're wrong, then you prove me wrong. And if you can prove them wrong, he'll change them. I remember one time he mentioned in one of the countries, I think it was Lebanon, that he said 89% of all the people in Lebanon were, were criminals. And I said, David, how can you say that 89% of the people are criminals? He said, well, they're killing each other. Isn't that a good definition of criminals? He said, well, that's a civil war. But... So he changed it. He changed it. But he puts all of these statistics out as well as he can and willing to change them. But he comes along and he says uh, the numbers are staggering of the people that have died for the Christian faith. He said from AD 33 until AD 2000, approximately 69,420,000 men, women, and children have been killed because they're Christians. If you think about that, that is a staggering number. 69 million people of that total number 9000 no, excuse me 9,101 have been martyred by muslims some of the worst situations of mass martyrdom in recent history were Edi Armin's uh, uganda massacre the sudan holocaust from 1963 to present the rwanda genocide of 1994 the killing of the armenians in turkey uh, at the turn of the century and his statement is that today approximately 160,000 Christians are killed every year because of their belief. So when there is this threat of of being murdered or being killed, I think we need to take it seriously. But at the same time, we have to realize that, that in this spiritual battle that we have going on between Satan and God, between Islam and Christianity, There is going to be many, many casualties and we have to just accept that as a fact. Now, I've tried to understand persecution and I had four different levels of persecution that I've experienced in going around the world. The first level of persecution is intimidation that includes threats that lead to social disenfranchisement of the victims. In many of the countries of the Middle East and in many other countries, in an increasingly large number of countries, there is beginning to be this intimidation. There's beginning to be this fact that if you cause any problems for Islam or if you are strong in your Christianity, there will be some results that are going to take place in your life. Uh, I remember once when I was down in South Africa, I had the opportunity of being on a on a radio station to present my book and so I presented my book on the radio station. One of the largest Christian radio stations uh, in South Africa called me and said, can you also give us an interview and I said yes. So I went to this rather large Christian radio station to give an interview and the lady was very kind to me and she said now, uh, Brother Weiner, you have to realize that uh, the Muslims listen to our radio station and you have to realize that we've got to be very careful in what we say. And I said, well, that's all right. I said, the Muslims aren't too unhappy with my book. They, they're kind of glad to find out what they're doing and the successes they have. And so, so by and large, the Muslims are not unhappy with my book. And she says, well, that's all right. We just have to be very careful. And so we started the interview and it was one of these interviews where they could stop and stop because they were going to edit it and put it on. And so she said, now, why did you write your book? And I said, well, I wrote my book so I could study six different groups. I could study the Southern Baptists, the uh, Assemblies of God, the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, the uh, Mormons, the Muslims, and uh, Islam. And she said, no, 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 you can't say Islam. I said, I can't say Islam. No, you can't say Islam. You have to say Eastern religions. And I said, well, can I say Muslims? No, you can't say Muslims you have to say adherence to Eastern religions." And I said, but just a second, I didn't write about Eastern religions. You can't use the word Islam and you can't use the word Muslim because if they do, we will possibly be bombed. You can't use it. So I said, okay. So I went ahead and I said, the Eastern religions have a three-pronged strategy. (laughs) And so everything that I said was the Eastern religions. I could not even use the word on a Christian radio station, Islam and Muslim, talking about their ability for intimidation and also persecution. And they have ways of being able to lead to social disenfranchisement. I uh, uh, went home last week to my little church that I'm pastor of, and uh, one of my ladies called me up and said, Brother Wagner, I lost my job. And the company she was working with downsized and she lost her job. And this has been really a, a catastrophic thing for all of us in the church because she's a faithful worker. Without gee, she's lost her job. And I thought to myself, how many Christians around the world today have lost their job and many other things just because they're Christians? And it's happening all the time. I was in Indonesia one time, and we met at a church where it was just kind of outside with a, a little mm-hmm. lean-to and. And we were meeting and one man came up on his bicycle and the pastor said, oh, this is a pastor from our next church. We're glad that you're here. And then he said, the reason why he's here is because his church was burned down last week and he has to come over to our church. Again, there is a persecution and it, it does include threats. And these people are living under these threats on a day by day basis. Number two, persecution that leads to material loss or limited possibility uh, for social advancement. Again, in my running around in the various parts of the world, I find this level of persecution happening often. Probably one of the more intense areas of persecution on this level number one and level number two and maybe even level number three is taking place in southern Egypt. In Egypt, you had about 8% of the population were Coptic Christians and these Coptic Christians are under great pressure because they are Christians and because Islam has the superiority. I was there one time and and a man came and about three months before that time he had a drugstore. His drugstore was the most successful drugstore in that town. Well why? Because he was a good businessman. he was honest, he did the right thing. Well, the Muslim druggist didn't like it, so what they did is they burned it down, and he lost his drugstore. And he said, this is happening over and over and over again. We are losing uh, our businesses. We're losing our ways of being able to make any type of a, uh, 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 a way of life. It's happening all the time. Uh, so there, there is limited social advancement. And if you're a Christian in many of these societies, you better forget the idea of ever being successful in society because if the majority are Muslim they will not allow you to be successful. They have in some countries, Pakistan is a good example and I know of of several cases where this has actually happened where if you defame Islam or if you defame the prophet and you say something bad about them then you might have to go to jail and and you will have problems of losing all of your income etc and what happens quite often in in these countries because this is the law of the land and you've got to remember that if you have two witnesses against you these two witnesses can can bring a statement against you and then they might be successful so what they do is they'll have two people that will come along and say yes this man defamed Muhammad and he spoke against Islam if the man's a Christian He doesn't have a leg to stand on, and so they put him into jail. And it might be totally wrong, totally false, but this is a part of this level two persecution. Level three is persecution that leads to isolation and separation from family, friends, and culture, and and prison, for example. Um, I remember when I was down in southern Egypt, and I must admit that I was deeply impressed by the persecution and the pressure that these people were under. An older lady came to me, and she had tears in her eyes. She said, Brother Wagner, Brother Wagner, they've taken my granddaughter. And I said, who has taken your granddaughter? And they said, the Muslims took my granddaughter. Why? What they do is they take these young girls that are between the ages of about 10 and 12, and they kidnap them. And they take them to a camp. It's an indoctrination camp for Islam, and they indoctrinate them into Islam. And they will keep them there as long as they remain a Christian. As soon as they convert to Islam, they'll be free to come home. And uh, the people there say that's happening all the time. They're losing their children. And they have no recourse. The police won't help them. Nobody will help them. Once they say that they're converted to Islam, then they're allowed to come. And many of the Coptic Christians will put a cross, sometimes on their wrist, sometimes on their hand, and they will uh, burn that off, of uh, these young kids that have these crosses, once they say that they've become a Muslim. And uh, so these people have the, the danger of going into jail. There is another story of a man that I met in Morocco one time, and this man had a, a very, very good job being an air controller at the airport, the main airport in Morocco, and he was a Christian. Well, in Morocco, they have a interesting belief, and the belief system says this, there are no Moroccans that are Christians, and they refuse to acknowledge that any Moroccans are Christians. They put Moroccans in jail for being Christians, but they refuse to acknowledge that they're Christians. That they just, you talk to the leadership, and they say, there are no Moroccans that are Christians. That has worked to our advantage. I had a friend who was a missionary, and he was in Morocco, so he went to get an extension of his visa. And when he went in to get the extension, they said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, we're working with Christians. Are you working with Moroccans? I don't know, are there any Moroccans that are Christians? No, I only work with Christians. Okay, and they gave him his visa. And of course, he's working with the Moroccans, but they refused to acknowledge they can be Christians. So this man was a Christian. And uh, so one of his co-workers got upset with him and went to the authorities and said, this man is a Christian. And the authorities says, well, we can't put him in jail for being a Christian because there are no Moroccans that are Christians. So they went to him and they says, do you observe Ramadan? And he said, uh, no, I do not observe Ramadan. Okay, put him in jail. Because if you don't observe Ramadan, there's a law in the country that says you can be put in jail. So they put him into jail for, for six months for not observing Ramadan. Persecution, clear and plain. Well, after about four months, his wife came and visited him. And and he told me this story himself. They said, oh, things are going bad. You're not getting any paycheck. We're having financial problems. And, we don't know what's happening and things are not good, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he was very, very discouraged. He was one of the few people in this prison who could read English because most of them were just street uh, thieves. And so he was in the prison. And right after his wife left him, he went out and he was walking in the, in the courtyard of the prison. And he saw a piece of a newspaper come flying in. And he went over and he picked it up. And it was an English newspaper. And again, he was one of the few that could read English, and he looked at it. And on the corner, still complete, was an article. And the article dealt with the devotion of the day. And the devotion of the day was that part of Romans that said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor any other power can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And he says, I fell on my knees, and I said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And what happened was, very soon thereafter, missionaries found out about the plight of the wife. They went and started giving him help, and the family was in good shape. And then as soon as he got out, his director said, you were put in jail incorrectly, gave him his back salary, and even gave him a promotion. So there is this this persecution that leads to isolationism, separation from family, friends, cult, and uh, prison. The fourth level is persecution that leads to death and physical in- injury. Uh, we all know about Van Gogh that was killed because of the movie that he put out about women in Islam. And again, the number of people that are put to death is staggering today and we really don't, don't have the time to go into it and to look at that. Well, there's all kinds of ways. I, I know of people that have had burned-out businesses children that were denied entrance into better schools, the uh, unavailability of government-sponsored housing, inability to gain both an exit or re-entry visa, transcripts not allowed to be sent outside of the country, and lack of promotion on the job. I had one young student that wanted to go into a doctoral work, and he was from one of the uh, countries of the Middle East, and they refused to give him any documentation that said what he had studied, and the reason being was because he was a Christian. <clears throat> well, we, we have uh, some other ways that uh, they have a, a much less way of intimidation. And uh, one man, as I said, this man Bruce Jones, gave several examples, and I, I want to use his examples, of ways that they are trying what they call stealth Jihad, going underneath the radar, trying to bring pressure on the society that they are in to have us accept Islam, and so this uh, man Bruce Jones has put together several ways and I might just go ahead and give it to you today. I thought they were kind of interesting, particularly the names that he has for these. First one he has is the three little pigs. According to Quran, pigs are unclean, and when Muhammad wanted to show disdain for the Jews. He told stories of incidents when God turned Jews into pigs and apes and when the uh, rhetoric is heard about Jews and rage about them. The pigs are the dirtiest animals of all. Well, the Muslims have certain ideologies about pigs, but what they're doing now is they're trying to say within the Western world, now, Western world, you have to accommodate our concept of pigs. They have one situation now up in, in Minnesota And it's it's a blooming situation where you have these ladies that are working in department stores. And uh, they are Muslims, and they, of course, have said they have to wear their their, their garb, and, and the department stores say that's all right. But what they do now is when they are checking people out and somebody buys any pork products, and the pork products come across the little scanner that they have they refuse to touch the spork products, and they say to the customers, I will not check you out. You've got to go to another stand, or you've got to take this back. I will not touch it. Well, of course, what happens? The owner of the store comes and says, now, just a second. You have to do it. These are our customers. These are a product." And they say, no, we're not going to. Well, it's become a, a pretty large battle right now because they, they just refuse to do it, and they say, if you, don't, if you make me do it, you're guilty of religious persecution. And so we're going to wait and see how this battle comes up. It's no longer today uh, possible in Holland to have a uh, living uh, farm experience in the schools like they used to do because many of the Muslim children in the classrooms are afraid there might be pigs out on the farm and they say they have to stop his particular practice. Uh, there are some riots that have taken place in various prisons uh, in Europe and the United States when a prisoner was accidentally served a ham sandwich. Uh, in many parts of Germany today, they ban the, the promotion of piggy banks. They used to have piggy banks, and they called them Schweinbanken in Germany. You can't do those today because it offends the Muslims, and they want to do away with the piggy bank. Uh, in Turkey, government-owned TV stations bar the popular Winnie the Pooh from the air because it has Piglet as one of its main heroes. In England, a borough council received a complaint from a Muslim employee that banned all pictures and knickknacks of novelty pigs. Muslims can get upset even when they see um, people from the West eating bacon and eggs. So what they're saying is, we have certain dietary uh, needs and certain dietary restrictions. Not only do we have these restrictions, but you also must be sensitive to our need and therefore you cannot uh, practice some of the things that you are doing." And they say you've, you've got to be sensitive. Now to a degree we do have to be sensitive to what they are but what about when you tell a a, a Muslim lady or a Muslim kid the story about this little piggy went to market. You can't do it. It's, it's against the rules, against the law. So they have been successful in bringing pressure uh, and this whole idea of, of pork. I remember going down to South Africa to a McDonald's, and it was in a uh, well, it was in an area that that there were a lot of Muslims. And I remember going in, and it said, "This is a halal restaurant." And by being a halal restaurant, that means that the food that they are serving is food that has been blessed and accepted by the Muslim clerics. And so Muslims can eat that, sometimes they can't. Now, whenever you have halal food, that also means that the only person that can prepare halal food are Muslims. So that means that when McDonald's or any other restaurant agrees to have halal food, that means they agree only to hire Muslims so that the Muslims can prepare it. They had a school down in South Africa close to where I lived. that was a Christian school. And uh, one of the ladies whose children used to go to that school said that there were five Muslims that came in. And so these five Muslims made a protest to the school and said, now, you have to serve uh, halal food in the, in the cafeteria because if you don't serve halal food, you're discriminating against us. Well, the leadership said, well, that, that's all right, I guess. You know, why, why do we have to have uh, food that's not halal? Halal food is pretty much like ours except for no pork and several other small things. So they said, all right. And then after they they started serving their halal food, they made another request, another request, another request, and they said they kept putting pressure on, pressure on, pressure on, until it came to the point that today that school is 100% Muslim, there are no more Christians in it. They have all been driven out, and they've been very successful in doing that. Uh, The second point that uh, this author has is those dirty dogs, the idea of dogs. and. Of course, we realize that the dogs are are normal and acceptable to us. But what do you do when suddenly the dogs begin to be in the Muslim parts of the areas and they they refuse totally to accept them? They had one story that I thought was a fascinating story dealing with with culture when there was a uh, uh, tribe of uh, people that had accepted Islam kind of up in, in the northern Caucasus. About where Chesney is now, and these people were there, and they were Muslims, and they were being persecuted by the Christians. And so, not too far to the south, there was a a a country that was primarily a Muslim country. And so, the head of this this tribe of Muslims up in the Caucasus went down to this man and says to the the main man, says, "May we come down and may we find refuge here? We want to." to uh, be able to live here because we're Muslim. The guy said, okay, come on. So this whole tribe came down. And they had this big festival where they were having a celebration that, that this tribe was also to be integrated with them and they were so happy and everything. And uh, you got to remember that they were two different cultures. And so when they were having this big meal, the leader of the tribe that had, been, had come down from the north was trying to say some wonderful things about the... Uh, the uh, Sheikh that had accepted them, and he said, "Oh Mighty Sheikh, you are a mighty man, and we're so thankful for what you've done. You are like a mighty dog, and we are like the little fleas that fly around his tail. He killed the man and all the people. Why you don't call the Sheikh a dog because of the you know a dog is a, is a dirty animal in Islam, so they, they do a lot of pressure on uh, trying to do away with dogs." Uh, those tipsy taxi drivers. You're probably aware of the fact that in Minneapolis they have a, a problem where 75% of the taxicab drivers come from Somalia. And they want to have their rights and they, they should have their rights. But one of the rights is that they refuse to pick up anybody who has a dog or anybody who has any alcohol. And these people come in from these duty-free shops carrying this alcohol and they say, we're not going to pick them up. You can't make us. Well, if... The city says, you've got to pick them up because you can't refuse. And they said, no. And if you force us into doing it, then that means that you are uh, having persecution on us. Consequently, we refuse to pick them up. And that case has not been totally solved at this particular time. Those believer bathrooms, you're aware of the fact that a Muslim has to wash his feet before he prays. Well, what do they do when they come into a Western situation? In a Western situation, they have to wash their feet. Where can they do it? Well, the only place they can do it is in the sink. And that gets to be a little bit more complicated. When you've got your feet, you've got to put your feet up and wash your feet in the sink. So, what do you do? That means that in the airports where these taxi drivers are, and in other places, you have to have a place to wash your feet for the Muslims well, this is an ongoing battle today where they're saying, can you actually really do that or not? Uh, you can have a lot of stories about, about, about bathrooms too. You know, when, when a, a man uh, urinates uh, in Islam, he always will sit down, he will stoop, he won't stand. Why? Because Sharia law says that's the way you're supposed to do it. And I always thought to myself, that's fascinating. If you really want to have, have an education, Read all of the Sharia laws. The Sharia laws are, 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 are really, I mean, they, they're, they're very intense in so many of these different things. So I was in the restroom in, um, in the airport in Indonesia, no, in Singapore, and they had a sign and they said, Please do not stand on the toilet seats. And I thought, why would anybody stand on the toilet seats? The reason why is because the customs that they have are such that they have to be changed. Now, so what they're doing is that they are forcing people to make changes in the way that uh, we build our buildings to accommodate them. And each one of these new changes that we make is a way of kind of giving in to intimidation. Then the cultural clothes, And you're well aware of the fact of the battles that are taking place, particularly in France today, about whether or not the girls can wear their headscarves when they go to uh, class. And at this point, most of the Muslim countries have pretty well stuck to their guns. I mean, the Christian countries have stuck to their guns and said, no, they cannot wear these scars, These, uh, you have to go without it. Now, what they do do is they say in, in France, Christian girls may not wear a cross. You can't wear a cross around your neck or you can't wear anything indicating that you're a Christian. But at the same time, the Muslims cannot wear anything indicating that they're a Muslim but uh, this is a problem. Now, in Dearborn, two women, said, two women said McDonald's would not hire them because they would not accept the functional reason for their restrictions. And so they resorted to lawfare and sued the company for $10 million. That was because the women said, we have to wear these, these blouses that have long sleeves. And McDonald's says, no, you can't wear those long sleeves because it, it, is, it can contaminate the food. You might get the sleeves in the food. So you've got to wear short sleeves in order to work at McDonald's. Being sued for $10 million because they're saying, you have to make an exception to who we are. And so uh, the court basically came along and said that there's an exception for the wearing of the headscarves, but not an exception to the uh, wearing of long sleeve shirts. Um, religious regulations, there's all kinds of things that have to do with prayer for seven times. What do you do when when they have to pray and when they have a job? So what they're saying in many of their companies today, you have to allow us to take our break five times a day, or not five times, about three times a day, during the prayer time. And even though that disrupts the, the working of the company, you have to do it. The very last one, and I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes on this one, is the uh, airborne Arabs. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait till the next time. This is a fascinating story that we have dealing with the problem of lawfare today and persecution. So, thank you very much, and may God richly bless you.